to Hip Hop Caucus's Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. One, two, one, two. <laughs> Man, can you hear me all right, Madison? Hey! Oh, y'all got to make a little more noise than that. Can you hear me all right, Madison? Yeah! Man, welcome to a special live edition of Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. Woo! <laughs> We are coming to you live mm -hmm. from the 2019 National Adaptation Forum in beautiful and no longer cold. There Thank is. God. There it is. Thank God. Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> Yo, make some noise! I am Rev Ewart, President and CEO of the Hip Hop Caucus. And I am Antonique Smith, Grammy-nominated singer, actress, and activist, a.k.a. your favorite artivist. Yes. <laughs> I know that's right. All right. And I am Mustafa Santiago Ali, former Senior Associate Administrator for the Environmental Protection Agency. All right. And Senior Vice President at the um, NWF. Handling climate, environmental justice, and climate change. Wow. Wow. Dang, Mustafa. <laughs> I swear, Mustafa, every time we do this, you just tell your whole resume. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, you know, big things. Guys. We got to do big things. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Anyway, we are your hosts for Think 100%, our award-winning platform that highlights solutions Right. The climate change and environmental injustices, including a just transition and moving to 100% clean, renewable energy. Think 100% is about more than that, though. It's about giving diverse voices the opportunity to show a broader picture of who is leading the climate movement. I know, that's right. As well as the community's climate change impacts the most. I know. Listen, I know that's right. Mm. Mm -hmm. Listen, we just finished up an amazing first season where in over 40, 40, 40, 40 episodes. 40 episodes. Yep. <laughs> we, I know that's right. We broke down the facts and gave our listeners their climate and environmental justice 101. In season one, we spoke to game changers, such as elected officials, movement builders, cultural makers. It was such an opportunity to give new listeners a perspective on the issues and the experiences that they may not have been exposed to otherwise. That's right, Rev. And we got the opportunity also to dispel a lot of the myths that people have about environmentalism. I know that. Showing folks that it isn't just a white movement. Uh-oh, come on now. I'm gonna say that again, it isn't just a white movement. It's about all of us, all of us who we have solutions. Yep. And it's going to take all of us if we're going to win on climate change. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. It is going to take all of us. Let me add to that, Mustafa. While climate change is impacting everyone, whether you know it or not, 
the crisis is all too real for people of color right. and poor people who are right. disproportionately impacted and, as we say, mm-hmm. hit first and worst. That's right. Yes, indeed. That's why we want to make sure everyone here in Madison and all of our listeners, our followers, are paying attention to those things that are happening on the front lines of climate change. I also want to mention, straight up, from the front line, communities, communities of color, indigenous populations. Come on now. The National Adaptation Forum is an opportunity to bring those from the movement together to enhance resiliency, natural systems, and the economy of all of our communities. This gathering brings representatives from all over 50 states, including community groups, NGOs, academia, and beyond. It's an opportunity for professional development, information exchange, and networking through numerous specialized events and sessions and experiences. Mm. So, we are pumped up. I know that. Y'all pumped up? Yes! For being here for this year in Madison. <laughs> yes, we had a chance to chat with a number of you today. Okay. And it's amazing what the forum has covered from urban planning, equitable water systems, community ownership, on, to now. impacts from sea level rise, mm. indigenous climate adaptation, and strategic land conservation. Oh, I like that. Yes. <laughs> well, 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 hold up, hold up, hold up. <laughs> so now... This is kind of my gig in this process. For our listeners who will listen to this amazing podcast, can someone just kind of explain? Because we have this young, diverse audience, particularly Gen Z and those who are coming into the movement, and they might not know what adaptation is. Mm. I'll take this question, Rev. Okay, all right. right. There are two main responses to climate change. Mitigation and adaptation. We won't get into mitigation today, but adaptation deals with seeking to lower the risks that are caused by the effects of climate change. Even though we as humans have been adapting to our environment for most of our existence, the measures we need to implement today Mm. need to be that much more on a larger scale and that much more urgent. Building defenses that protect us from sea level rise, hotter temperatures, and generally just shifting our behavior around how we consume and how we go about preventative standards are some of the things adaptation encompasses. Uh, Adaptation is simply how we are reacting to the things that are going on with real-world solutions, the things that we talk about here on Think 100%, climate disasters and impacts and stronger overall sort of changes that we have to make. Local action is leading the way. Oh, I'm with that. I know that's right. (laughs) And many of those local leaders and those who are champions for what's going on are right here in the audience. Give yourselves a round of applause. Yes. From coast to coast, local action is where it's at. Mm -hmm. And this isn't new to Think 100%. We just finished up one episode in beautiful Orlando, Florida. That's right. I know you like going to Orlando, Rev, where we were joined by Chris Castro, the city's director of sustainability, who also is one of the youngest, one of the youngest uh, directors who are there uh, across the country. Orlando also has many things. Uh-oh, we got some Chris fans. Go ahead, give them some love. Go ahead. <laughs> also, uh, Orlando has many things that are popping in this space, including an amazing urban agriculture program that creates localized foods uh, in like residential that. neighborhoods like, and the program I like serves. That. I, do I know like you like that. that. Rev likes the food. <laughs> uh, also practices sustainable food systems from farm to local to the market to the table. Mm. 
let's bring out someone who is putting her expertise into making this city more sustainable and resilient. Welcome to the stage, the mayor of Madison, Wisconsin! Thank you. Welcome to Think 1%, the coolest show on climate change. <laughs> Thank you. So I feel cooler already. There it is. <laughs> so this is week one. Yeah. So is this your uh, is this your first podcast that you've been on? This is my first podcast oh. as mayor. And we want to thank you because we know you've been extremely busy getting your administration going. So we have just really appreciate you taking um, this time to join us today. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that you know this shows how important these issues um, are to you and your team. So for that. We thank you. Mm. Yes. Yeah, thank you. There's nowhere else I'd rather be. Aww. Mm-hmm. So now I want to jump right into the, just the, the conversation of equity and justice side of all of this. And I think we shall start with some basics. Everyone deserves access to healthy food. Mm. So pulling from your work with the Madison Food Policy Council, um, how are you planning to use your new role in making Madison's food access that much more equitable? Yeah, that's a great question. So I've been on the uh, Madison Food Policy Council f- uh, since 2013 mm. um, as a resident of Madison. Um, and we've been doing a lot of good work. We did a lot of good work around community gardens. And we've made it possible, uh, clearly legal, for people to do front yard gardens. Mm. Um, and in fact, to be able to um, plant on the terraces, right on the other side of the sidewalk from your yard. Wow. Um, so people can use that as well. Um, we've pushed on healthy retail, um, making sure that we've got, uh, in all neighborhoods in Madison, and now we're not there yet, but we're pushing on it. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got funding dedicated for that. Um, we've been working a lot with the school district, and we're working to um, reduce food waste and make sure that edible food gets to people who can eat it. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of work has been done. But what I, um, we've got a, a pressing issue right now on Park Street in the south side of Madison where we're on the edge of losing a grocery store. So that's a, a real, like one of my top priorities. First week, I've already been working on how do we make sure that we don't get a food desert there. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank you. And real quick, we have a lot of new listeners who are just new to the movement, listening to Think 1%. So explain, what is a food desert? Well, uh, the short version is you don't want any neighborhoods where people don't have access to affordable, healthy food. Mm. Right? And so how you get access, there's a lot of different ways, but most people get it at the grocery store, right? So you lose a grocery store, that's a problem. Right. One of the things we're looking at is how we, can we support um, existing what people would call ethnic markets yeah. right? that are already in the neighborhoods selling food, but maybe not everybody's going there. And so that's an issue. Like, why are you not going there? Um, we're going to dig into that a little bit, <laughs> look at that. But one of the things that I really want to look at going forward in the food system is how are we making sure that equitable... Um, access to healthy and affordable food is paired with good jobs. Mm. Because we got to have both, right? right? Mm. We got to have both. Mustafa, 
Yeah, you know, Mayor, one of the things that is in lots of people's minds, they see it on TV, are these disastrous, devastating floods that have been impacting uh, folks across the Midwest this year. And unfortunately, this climate of uh, climate disaster is one that has become the new normal, if you will. So, you know, I think it would be really important to talk to people about how you are preparing and planning here in Madison to be able to deal with some of these types of things. Yeah, well, you all probably know that last year um, we had some pretty serious floods in Madison and um, we had loss of life and um, incredible property damage, and uh, which went on for then weeks, even months, um, because of our chain of lakes, yeah. right? We've got, um, once the water's in the lakes, you know, it takes a really long time for that water level to go down. Um, so the way that I'm thinking about it, we, we got to be prepared on the crisis response, right? That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. And we do that pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the long term, we have to think about what a more resilient stormwater management system looks like. And that has got to include green infrastructure, right? It's just got to. So we got to be thinking about how do we use the, our own right of way, the land that the city controls to install green infrastructure. And then we got to be looking at how do we encourage the private sector to manage stormwater on their own sites? How do we make it easier for your average home to put in rain barrels, mm-hmm. right? To maybe have a rain garden, but also the bigger buildings, how are they managing their stormwater? So I, there's a, I'm excited about the possibility to work on this. I just today was at one of our engineering facilities. They've got a green roof. They're keeping almost all of their stormwater on site. Mm. Every building needs to do that. Mm. 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 Anthony, I, I, want you to, I want you to ask this question, but I, just do, I want to do a quick follow-up, Mayor, okay. because yeah. as you were talking about that with Mustafa, I just want to lift up for those. Our prayers still go out to those who are in, in South Dakota at the Pine Ridge yeah. Reservation mm-hmm. um, who are dealing with the 100-year flood, as Mustafa says, is not happening once every other year. Right. Um, and so we're seeing how with the poverty mixed in with that, how literally lives are just being lost. Yeah. So we just want to lift up for all those who are hearing these solutions by the mayor um, that that these people literally are losing their lives. Yeah. yeah. And, and I guess for you, a question is that how does that impact you in regards to the real life, in other words, people who are suffering because of climate change. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, so, it is very much on my mind, not just the danger to to life and limb, right, but to the long-term impacts. Um, You know, as you said, people of color are hurt first and worst Mm -hmm. by the impacts of climate change. And that's true in here in Madison too, right? You think about the neighborhoods that flood. So when I I was on the city council for six years and um, one of the neighborhoods I represented was a primarily uh, low-income neighborhood, um, more people of color there than in the rest of the city proportionately. And it was built, God knows why, it was built so that it would flood regularly. It was just the developer didn't do a good job grading it, you know, decades ago. And, and so what does that mean? It means when it floods, people's basements get water in them and then mold grows and they don't have either the ability to deal with it or to force their landlord to deal with it. And then their kids get asthma and, and then you have a cascade of negative impacts, mm-hmm. right? That's lifelong, right? So when we think about flooding and why we need to have green infrastructure and deal with stormwater, it's not because... You know, I'm worried about the street flooding and cars being able to drive. Although, yeah, I guess I am worried about that safety aspect. It's because I don't want people to have wet basements hmm. 
where mold can grow and ruin their belongings and impact their kids' health. And, and that's what's motivating here, right? Is the, the health and safety and welfare and long-term impacts, particularly for families of color. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Pulling from your time leading the University of Wisconsin-Madison Mayor's Innovation Project, where you worked with local cities across the country, are there any particular policies or practices that you would like to implement here in Madison that others have? And what practices does Madison have that you want to make sure everyone knows about? Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I mean, where to start, right? There's a long <laughs> list. Um, I'm uh, particularly impressed with the way that Philadelphia has done um, stormwater management. Mm-hmm. I think they've been really leading uh, across the country. Um, there are... Uh, don't tell the state legislature, but I'd love to um, get to a place where we could require um, at least solar-ready construction, if not uh, actual solar construction. Um, I'm going to fight with the legislature about that one, because if we try and do it, they're going to take away our ability to do it like that. Um, but we're going to look at, at that, um, but also at, at white and green roofs. Um, you know, I, I think that there's... It, like Baltimore has done some some work on the rooftop stuff, which is really interesting. Um, and there are examples, frankly, all across the country in energy efficiency. Mm. Um, and we're doing a great job on our own buildings here in Madison for energy efficiency. But what I'm really interested in is how do we push that out into the community and how do we use it as a job training opportunity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that we can get young people into the trades... Right, learning how to do the construction that essentially a retrofit of a house is just a construction job, right? right? And so how do we get people into that, lift them up, get them on a career pathway? Mm. And so one thing that I think is really exciting that Madison's doing, um, again, I was out at an engineering facility today and I met um, three young people who now work for my engineering department. Come on now. But they started, so two women and a a young African-American man, and they started as apprentices learning how to install solar panels. Wow. Mm -hmm. And we're training them. The city is training them. Wow. And they're getting NABCEP certification, (laughs) and they put up, you would not believe, this is, they, they put up a beautiful solar array. Mm-hmm. And so they walked me through the solar array and the, um, the inverters and the whole deal. And you should have seen the pride in that young woman's face when she's telling me, I installed this. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And now she works for my engineering department and she's looking around and she's like, I want to learn how to use that. I want to learn how to do that. I want she's, this is, this is going to be her life, right? This is going to awesome. be her career. And she mm-hmm. is now on a career pathway. And that's going to make sure that she's earning a living wage. She has benefits. Right. Right. And she's making the world a better place by entire right. Stoller. Oh, it's right. like, yeah. come on. Oh, right. Come on. Win, win, win. Man. So, Mayor, you know I come out of an environmental justice background, and, and um, I appreciate what you just shared. Mm-hmm. Sort of in the totality of the plans that you have to help move forward, mm. how are you going to make sure that our most vulnerable communities, communities of color, low-income communities, indigenous uh, brothers and sisters, are driving? Mm-hmm. How, do they, how do you ensure that they have the opportunity? Mustafa, real quick, explain vulnerable communities for folks who are listening. Mm. 
Well, vulnerable communities are the ones that, as we've been saying, are the ones who are most likely going to be impacted. We often talk about the double whammy. You know, they already have the impacts that are happening from pollution that's going on in their communities, Mm -hmm. both impacting their health and their wealth. Mm -hmm. Let me say that again for those of you who are taking notes. (laughs) Their health and their wealth, because it's extracting wealth out of their communities when they're placed in these situations. And now we have the overlay of climate change, which give us that double whammy, if you will. And in many instances, and you know, I know you and, and I know that you are forward thinking. We have far too many folks who are not including them in the process of the framing out, uh, both of the you know, application and, and all the other things that go into that. How are you going to make sure that those voices are a driver? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, it's, it's a central one. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that the city of Madison, but also just cities across the country, have traditionally not done a very good job of engaging community, period, mm-hmm. much less vulnerable communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think a lot about how to do a better job of that. Mm. And I don't know exactly what it looks like because some of that has to be co-created with the communities themselves. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. But I think that the... Um, the principles are important, right? So the principle of uh, going and listening, mm-hmm. not showing up with, I've got this idea or this plan and please tell me what you think of it, mm-hmm. right? But listening first, hearing second, right? Proving that you heard, yeah. right? Yeah. And then what are you gonna do about it? And no matter what you did or didn't do about it, going back and saying what you did or didn't do. Mm-hmm. And why? Mm-hmm. Right? Because mm-hmm. how else are you going to build trust? That's right. right. right? And what's lacking is trust. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we right. should just leave folks with, for those of you who follow the environmental justice movement, a key tenet, a key principle is that communities speak for themselves. Come on now, say that again. Yeah. Yes. And the other thing that I think about is that we have to make sure that when we are thinking about how to mitigate from the impacts Mm -hmm. of climate change, that we are thinking about where the benefit flows. Mm -hmm. Who is going to benefit from the work that we are doing? And that's why I'm talking about young people, people of color getting trained up to install solar. Right? Right. That's why I'm talking about how do we create good construction jobs through energy efficiency. Mm-hmm. Right? We've got an apprenticeship program for our fleet. Now, we're, we're moving to a green fleet. Right? We're going to have electric buses. We've got hybrid cars. We, I mean, we're, our fleet director is hot to trot on this, let me tell you. He is excited about it. Okay. Um, and so how do we figure out how to bring the benefits of the work that we are doing to be more sustainable as a city mm-hmm. back to those neighborhoods? Mm-hmm. Not in a way that's about developing or improving, right? but in a way that is about lifting up what's there mm-hmm. and making sure the people who are already in a neighborhood are benefiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for yeah. Man, I like that. Man... All these young people across the world are demanding that leaders act on climate change before it is too late. Yes. So tell us, what is going on with a Green New Deal here in Madison? Mm. Let's bring it. Let's bring it. Let's bring it. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, you know... um, I've been talking about some version of a Green New Deal for probably a decade and a half now, right? 
uh, I, when I started working at the UW, we started talking about with the Apollo Alliance, mm-hmm. good jobs, clean energy. Right. Right? It's got to go together. Right. Right? And how do you make sure that the impacted communities are leading the way? Mm-hmm. Right? That's what it's all about. So, yes, we got to do that in Madison. Um, it looks like everything I've talked about and more. Right? How do we make sure that we're doing everything we can internal to the city? Right? And then that we're pushing it as far out into the community as we can, that we're putting pressure on other large institutions. I've already talked to the superintendent of schools. They're going to be doing some major investments in their infrastructure, in their buildings. Uh, and how can we help them make sure that that is as sustainable as possible, mm. right? Mm. We're going to partner with the county that's been doing some great, really leading work on climate change, mm-hmm. make sure that we're in step with them and that we are working together as much as we possibly can. How do we bring that out? Uh, I haven't had that many meetings yet. It's only been a week. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm pretty confident that every meeting that I've had with somebody in the private sector, I have had so- said something about sustainability, Mm-hmm. and what I want them to do on it. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to be, you know, it's that kind of conversation Man. to make sure that it is always on the table, that we are thinking, because we don't have, we have a decade, right? Mm-hmm. We have right. a decade or maybe less. And we cannot waste any time. Mm-hmm. That's right. So let's get to work. Yes. It was awesome to have the new mayor on the show. Yes, yeah, it was. Um, so awesome. Uh, and we sort of hinted um, a little bit at it in our conversation, but in season two, I think 100%, which is about to kick off out there, the theme is young people will win. That really means for us, for, and for all of us, in all sincerity, that means that young people and the voices and their perspective and their interests and their leadership of young people, mm-hmm. particularly young people of color, mm-hmm. is our focus. Yes. Mm-hmm. So with, with a youthful movements continuing to build around the world, from Greta Thunberg's Fridays for the Future to Zero Hour to the Sunrise Movement to HBCU students, I'm HBCU grad, to the Earth Guardians, to the Extinction Rebellion, young people are stepping up in the fight for their future. So one of the things here that I want to talk about is in this in the uprising for the against the No Dapple pipeline in Standing Rock. Mm-hmm. And I was blessed to be out there. And I just want to tell the story that it was young people. It wasn't the elders at Standing Rock. It wasn't the tribal council. We're not the ones who decided to start what would become the largest peaceful protest of Native Americans in U.S. history. It was a small group of teenagers who ran 2,000 miles from Standing Rock to Washington, D.C. to protect their water. So before the action of young people, the Dakota Access Pipeline wasn't on the map, and the tribe wasn't really going to stand up in a way that, were, that they ultimately did. Thank God they didn't. There were some amazing from Phyllis Young and other elders, but it was this young people. It was those teenagers that the youth that changed everything. Now, 
I say all of this because right now we have two young leaders. And let me also say before I get to this, introducing these two young leaders who are going to come to the stage, I need you all to really understand because a lot of times when you hear, and I think the man for what he said, but as a young person, the psychological implications and impact of hearing that the world you live in will not exist the same way. That sea level risings, and if you're a young person of color already dealing with poverty and pollution at the same time. At the same time. Time. Mm -hmm. Thank you for not using the word in that process. Mm. <laughs> you have young people who are literally finding out they must not only fight for equality, but they must also fight for existence. So understand that there's a sense of urgency to them. So even when we're having our conferences and our conversations, to them, this is about life or death. This is not a game. So when they see the same old, same old, same old, same old happening, that does not work for young people today. Zalalem Adafriz joins us as the Resilience Director from Catalyst Miami. I like that. This organization is focused on solving and identifying issues such as healthcare access, grassroots leadership building, and network activation within Miami-Dade County. Mm. As Resilience Director, Zalalem educates communities on climate change through connecting them with resources and opportunities for empowerment. Come on. Lastly, she is a smart young lady I boasting know. degrees from both Emory and Brown. Uh-oh. <laughs> All right. Well, next we have Victoria Benson. Come Victoria on. Jones joins us as the program manager of the Community Climate Solutions Team with the Movement Strategy Center and national organizer of the National Association of Climate Resilient Planners, like which is that. Bay Area based. Her background involves community advocacy and organizing and collaborative evaluation at the intersection of health and city planning. As the Community Climate Solutions Lead, Victoria guides innovative initiatives that advance transformative resiliency. Mm. I like that word, transformative. I like mm -hmm. that too. Supports climate justice leaders, stakeholders, and the regeneration of healthy communities. She has earned degrees from Stanford and Berkeley. Come on. Let's give it up for her with a warm welcome. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for being here. Let me start with Victoria. The focus of your work is community-driven climate resilience planning framework, which includes storytelling of work happening on the ground. Mm. One successful project that came out of your team's work is Pathways to Resilience Dialogues, similar to the aim of Think 100%. What are the ways in which you've experienced the power of storytelling and its deepening of the movement? And how has this led to creating a network? Mm. Oh, I want to talk about storytelling really quick first. Storytelling is very powerful. It's one of the most magical things I think that human nature, that human communication has. It impacts the way we see our reality and our world building. And it's a very powerful force. And we, uh, right now, there's a lot of narratives and storytelling around um, despair and doom mm -hmm. uh, and extraction without any, without any negative consequences. Um, and at the same time, what you all do and what we are working to do around storytelling is to really shift that narrative, um, transform that narrative, mm. 
uh, not incrementally, but rapidly, because it's necessary, and that's how change happens, uh, towards, instead of, uh, you know, archetypes of um, heroes who are, you know, controllers, who are um, not showing vulnerabilities and showing, showing strength through aggression, but actually shifting to a narrative of regeneration, um, intergenerational connection, interdependence, and resilience, right? So how do we shift that? And not only are we needing to transform that, it's happening right now. Um, and how we can tell that story on platforms like this or through the work that I do is really connecting with those who are on the front lines, who are impacted first and worst, who benefit the least from all of the extraction that's mm -hmm. happening, right? Because they're the ones who are actually living that future right now. Say it again. Those are the ones who are living that future right now. Right. And I think what's important to, to think about in terms of being more specific about the work that I've been doing is uh, that, that community urban planning framework spotlights different communities uh, in Buffalo, New York, in the Bay Area, um, in the Gulf South, right, of how they have responded not only to the climate change and the crises, but also how they're seeing the interconnectedness. It's not disconnected, right? Mm. Extraction of the planet is also extraction of people. Come on. Right, and so all of it is connected. And so one of the things that was really powerful just last month, I see some people right up front who were with me last month. We uh, sat together um, building this network um, called the National Association of Climate Resilience Planners and sat in story circles. Uh, so connecting back to different ways of being um, and different cultural understandings of what it means to strategize, what it means to develop tools through storytelling. Mm. And folks were able to learn from across places uh, and so that's about movement building, right? That's power building because you're learning strategies. They told these stories and then they took those stories and deconstructed them to see where are our shared priorities, where are the milestones that we're trying to hit that actually reach to our 100-year vision that we're trying to get to, and then how do we take that and bring it back to our communities? So that's just one example of, how, of what I think about storytelling and how powerful it is and what we've been doing in our work. I love awesome. that. I like that. That's awesome. I like that. Mm. What's up, Zalem? How are you? Good. Welcome to Think 100%. Nervous. Nervous and honored. You have. (laughs) No, you got this. You got this. So, you know, uh, Miami, beautiful place. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to be there. But we also know there's some real challenges that are going on. Um, Can you talk a little bit about some of the work that you guys are doing of making bridges to resources and helping to make real change happen? Mm. Yeah, for sure. So um, I work for an organization called Catalyst Miami. We're a local anti-poverty nonprofit in Miami-Dade County. Um, So we've been around for uh, a little over 20 years in Miami-Dade and started uh, doing climate work uh, when we came together with a lot of other organizations to plan uh, the first People's Climate March uh, in Miami-Dade County. All right now. So we do um, community engagement and community empowerment through a program called CLEAR. It's a leadership training program. It stands for Community Leadership on the Environment, Advocacy, and Resilience. Come on. (laughs) That's why we have an acronym. (laughs) So yeah, it's a 10-week leadership training program. We we do our best to reduce all the barriers um, that people have in order to get to places and to learn and to build their leadership skills. So we provide um, transportation, interpretation. Uh, we provide food. We have it in the evenings. We provide childcare by having a youth empowerment program at the same time so that families learn together. Um, and we, we have 200 graduates of that program. Mm. Uh, and they work with us to do policy work. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, so we have immense challenges in Miami-Dade County, and, and I really believe it's, it's not possible for anyone in government to make adequate policies that are going to address, address these challenges. Um, because we have such a diverse population, even if I helped, I could not possibly represent um, the amount of diversity and the amount of need and the amount of challenges that we have. And so I think it's really important to have uh, um, educated and motivated community members that are able to speak for themselves. Uh, and so that's what we're trying to build um, because otherwise I, I don't think we're gonna, we're gonna find uh, the solutions that we need. So together we can do it. In both of your efforts, um, you focus on helping communities be more involved in the policy and the planning processes. How have you put or helped shift the processes in bringing on individual or groups of communities to the policy making and or planning process? And either one of you can start on that. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Let's go. We'll start. Yes. We'll start, yeah. <laughs> Alphabetical order, V's before Z, all right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I uh, play a role as an intermediary and uh, it's, I feel very privileged to be a, a bridge worker. Um, and also sometimes it's exhausting. Um, but one of the things- and Can you explain for our, our young listeners oh, sure. who listen what a bridge worker is? Yeah. How far back should I go? Okay, so uh, one reason, for me, it actually feels like a sacred responsibility. Um, I'm mixed race black and I've grew up always bridging. Um, sometimes not when I wanted to. And uh, people have walked on me as a bridge, like, oh, let me talk to you about this because uh, you're the light skin one, it's safe, right? Which is like all kinds of things to unpack there, right? Um, and at the same time, being living in multiple realities that we all actually do, but it being very stark. Um, for me, I really learned the skill of being able to like translate and code switch uh, for survival, but also um, in ways that lead to like transformative change and why I do the work that I do. And so for me, I work at being a drawbridge now. So I choose when I'm a bridge and when I'm not. <laughs> yeah. Come on now. I love it. <laughs> um, and then lo and behold, I find myself in this role at an organization that is a bridge and I didn't even realize it was like sort of, that's why I feel like it's a sacred responsibility. Mm -hmm. And so in the context of this work uh, as a bridge, I work with grassroots organizations as well as grass tops. And so as a bridge worker, um, I see my role as one being really privileged to have meaningful relationships with grassroots leaders on the ground and then having that sacred responsibility of actually elevating that, not because it's what I'm bringing them, they already have, they already know what they need, they already have their priorities, but how can I use in the current systems we operate in my positionality to actually shift the way that grass tops are thinking and working and help support building the capacity on both sides, but in particular with grass tops for people in the room it takes time to actually learn how to undo the ways you've learned how to interact with communities, right? Government is not set up for transparency and connection. It's, it's actually set up for control, even though the intention ideally is different, right? And you all are here because you care and you want to serve not only, I'm sure, the communities you're responsible for, but also the planet. But let's acknowledge that we need to shift the culture of how that happens. So just really concretely, one of the ways I have been privileged to be able to do that is this past year, working with these two wonderful humans sitting up front 
Vatic and Paul, I see you, um, who are based in Providence, uh, and several other cities, Portland and Seattle and Washington, D.C., to uh, really, they're doing work collaboratively with grassroots leaders as well as city staff in their sustainability departments mm. to actually shift the way uh, community engagement happens or community marginalization happens, mm. right? Shifting it towards community ownership and over planning processes and policies that impact them. And so that I was uh, playing this role of a learning and evaluation support of, of doing this process of how do we learn from the work that y'all are doing now, right? That those cities are doing now and how they deepen that. How do they deepen trust knowing that's hard? And then how does that lead to actual solutions around like racially just sustainable cities and communities? And so a couple things like, you know, everybody loves tools. So there's tools that came out of that and four case studies that are amazing. And at the same time, in those cities, um, what I feel excited and honored about to see how it will continue to grow is really pushing this idea that we can't do this in a silo. This is happening in sustainability departments. And at the same time, um, community leaders in these cities have been pushing to say, our priorities around, um, like the mayor was talking about, around uh, you know, workforce development and addressing poverty. And how are we going to make our buildings green and not have green gentrification, right? Not push people out and displace them. Mm-hmm. So it's... Okay. All right. I really like... The like vibe, everyone's so positive. You're such a warm audience. Um, and so that led to them working, you know, in, in Providence, I'm gonna call you out, you know, they're doing uh, some work across departments to actually say, we don't just wanna work on um, our climate action plan, our sustainability plan, our 100% uh, renewable energy. We wanna do systems change, and that requires working across departments. And so that's one of the examples I wanted to share. No. Yeah. Awesome. Listen. I like, I like that. Please, please, please. Yeah. Same question. Yeah, so I guess for me, kind of the initial end game of what I'm trying to build and do. I, I, like, I like how you put that, though. <laughs> you know, we're not sponsoring none of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, is I want to build a culture of community engagement in Miami-Dade County, and it's something mm. that really doesn't exist, um, at least in a widespread manner. And so... That's what I'm trying to change, uh, and that's what I'm trying to work with our government staff and our elected officials um, to eventually opening up processes to make them accessible to people. Oh, that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, if I want a really collaborative and transparent government, um, myself as a community organizer, I have to model that in the work that I do. Um, and I don't know. I think that, you know, th- that's always a challenge <laughs> uh, for people. I don't think it's all in our nature to be collaborative and transparent at 100% of the time. Um, and so one way that I do that, I work with an organization called the Miami Climate Alliance. We're a coalition of 80 um, organizations in Miami-Dade County working together to address our climate challenges. Um, and so I run a lot of our policy work through the Miami Climate Alliance. So, um, for example, we do clean energy work, and uh, I have a coalition. I invite everyone. Our emails are public. Uh, anyone's willing, to, uh, able to come to our calls. Um, we have them leave 
evening after work. Um, we have 70 people involved. Uh, and so when we have meetings or we have calls and there's 70 people every time, uh, I try my very best to, to make sure that everyone's voice is heard. And no matter where you are on the spectrum, whether you're like a solar installer or someone that's a policy expert that's working on this for 40 years or whether you're just interested and um, you have no background at all, but you know your community and um, you're interested in this topic, I work hard to bring people together and make sure that everyone feels like uh, they're welcome and they're able to participate. And that's the way um, we produce really quality policy solutions um, for for things that I wouldn't even think about um, that I don't think any of us would think about unless we were working together. Yeah, I... I just think it's really important to lead by example, and uh, especially as organizers, especially as nonprofit folks, um, whatever you're demanding your government or whatever you're demanding whoever, you have to model that first and foremost. Mm. Yeah. Come on. That's good. I like That's that. That's really good, yeah. Victoria, the aim of Think 100% is to bridge the gap in knowledge and voices in the movement by showcasing real work. Mm. On the same vein, how does Community Climate Solutions Team and National Association of Climate Resilience Planners aim to bridge the gap? I and mean, we talked a bit about a bridge earlier. Mm-hmm. I love this. Like, yeah, we're not bridging everything. Just, <laughs> you know? I love it. Thank you. Um, well, I talked a little bit about one example of that. Um, going a little bit deeper into the National Association of Climate Resilience Planners, uh, I just want to put a shout out um, as a, as an intermediary. I just wanted to bring like the the leadership and voices into this space that couldn't be here for multiple reasons: cost, accessibility, how this place is even structured, being a few of them. If you walked in the doors over there, you will have seen a mural that um, is the 100-year vision of the NACRP. Doesn't roll off the tongue, but it's not NACRP, so please don't say that. It's NACRP. <laughs> and, uh, and so you'll see that vision out there of, of what does it mean, where do we actually want to go when we know things are going to transition, we, what is the way that we want to be a part of that? What does that just transition look like? Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that. But what the, the NACRP is a multi-stakeholder network that really is about peer learning, resource sharing, and referral lists. That is about building power and strength for actually effective and holistic climate solutions. Say that. <laughs> Again, for real? Say it. So um, that has been... A really uh, a labor of love and it's emerging network that is unique because it's actually again bridging it's bringing together grassroots leaders facilitators who can facilitate those processes around community driven planning uh, towards uh, you know sustainability as well as grass tops right we're all essential all of us you know think about 100% renewable energy also 100% of us and this network uh, is doing bridge work not only in the story circles where people are learning strategies and taking those back to their communities, but also in a nuanced way where it's like it takes all of us and we need to acknowledge power and privilege and positionality and having grassroots leaders really at the center driving what the solutions are. Because let's face it, people who are the most impacted often are not actually able to, like they're not allowed to participate in our systems. And so we need to really be thinking about how are people, because what we have to do is beyond 
around our current systems, they're gonna look completely different. So who not to center that not only those who have been impacted the most, but also who might have actual, like they one lived experience and ideas and expertise on how we can really rebuild, um, not only outside of our system, but also within. And that's what this network is about, is an inside outside strategy towards a 100 year vision where we are all actually able to exist and thrive as things change and transform. Um, and the last thing I just wanted to say um, about that vision piece when you go out there is just to, to know that that was made up of 50 people who came across the country and did a visioning exercise. And the purpose of that is to think about where are we going? You know, we have to, we have to know not only where we are, but also where we want to go. And that that is a collective vision. And I really believe that the people in this room and um, really need to be thinking about the vision as it comes from those who are most impacted. So please take some time to look at that. It not only is uh, beautiful to look at, it's inspiring and it, it shows really some examples of what it looks like, like you know, community-based solar, thinking about housing, thinking about how uh, communities that actually have solutions also are still getting impacted by things like state-sanctioned state violence and how that can destabilize a community, especially when emergencies and um, climate crises hit, right? But we know that social cohesion exists in these communities and that those things that not only around climate change, but around other inequities of extraction are impacting them. So we have to think holistically about that. And that's what I'll say. Mm. Victoria, Victoria, real, real quick. So I'm listening to the podcast right now, and I'm, we're going to get people have to know where to find you both. But right now, if they're looking for that chart, where would they go look for that? Um, you're right because they're not in the room to look at the vision. So the nacrp.org will have we'll put up. It's not up yet because it literally just got finished on Monday. We'll put it up so people can see that vision. Excellent. nacrp.org. Thank you so much, Mustafa. I want to go back to Miami. Um, I think it's important for uh, folks who have not been there to see some of these climate impacts that are happening for you to maybe share a little bit about some of these impacts that are happening, but also what are communities asking for? And also, you know, what are those resources that are needed? Yeah. Um, so we have a lot of climate impacts. Mm -hmm. I can list them off. <laughs> okay. Um, so we have sea level rise. Um, we have extreme heat. Um, and I think that might be one of the most <laughs> important ones. Um, what does that look like for folks, though? Um, you know, sometimes we talk about Actually, you know, I will tell you guys a story instead, instead of listing them off. So... Uh, in 2015, 2016, we had the Zika outbreak uh, in, in Miami and in South Florida. Uh, and I was reading in the newspaper, and I don't know, you know, like, well, anyways, so this is what I read in the newspaper, that the very first locally transmitted case, which means it's not someone that went on a trip somewhere, um, it wasn't a sexually transmitted case, I mean locally transmitted by uh, the mosquito itself, um, was of a woman uh, who was living in a boarding house uh, and her landlord doesn't pay, uh, they have broken AC and, and the landlord doesn't pay for screens on the windows. Mm -hmm. So of course it's very hot in Miami, like I said, so we sleep with the windows open. Um, and they suspect um, that's where she got the Zika from, from sleeping with the windows open. Um, on top of that, she was pregnant. Um, and so I think that kind of illustrates the combination of, of challenges that we face and, and what people need. Um, 
So, you know, we need affordable housing. We have the most unaffordable housing market in the entire country. Mm. Um, we have extremely low wages um, on top of sky-high rents. Uh, and most of the buildings, they sit vacant that they build, the luxury condos, uh, because we can't afford. Uh, the, the locals cannot afford to live in them. They're mostly used... Um, for folks around the world to store their money, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to be frank with you. Wow. Um, so the buildings are vacant. Um, mm. Yeah, so, I mean, the same thing that a lot of our communities need, I think wages and, uh, you know, strong wages uh, and then um, housing and places to live um, because it, it really impacts our our public health, <laughs> mental well-being, um, stress, the whole, the whole gamut. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. Thank wow. you. Wow. Man, this was some real talk, y'all. That <laughs> was some real talk. Real talk. On think one percent. Do y'all want some real talk? Yeah. Anthony, give them some real talk. Well, this question is to both of you. What does environmental and climate justice mean to you? And for the real talk, as Rev just requested. How has the movement possibly limited you mm. because you are women of color? Mm. <laughs> I ain't said that real now. Good luck. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about this question, and I think the wording is interesting because you choose the word justice. Mm. And, you know, this week we've been talking a lot about equity, uh, which I think is really important because it's important that resources go to where they're meant to to the communities that need them most, and that's what equity is. Um, But even in speaking about that, I noticed that most of the panels I went to were majority white, if not all white, speaking about equity, uh, particularly from the government and municipal point of view. So I think we have to think why that is. Uh, Is it because there's not enough people of color working working on the issue. And if that's true, why is that? And so I really applaud those that, that brought um, the community members and the allies that they work with here to this conference, like somehow found the funding to do that and even had them speak for themselves because I just thought that was really amazing for those of you that did that. Um, and the other thing I was thinking about um, was a lot of the research um, I wasn't aware of this until very recently. How much money goes in goes into research? Um, how much money goes into research? Some of these grants, especially the big federal grants, are millions of millions of dollars. Um, and, and sometimes the research just sits on a shelf, and, and we don't know how we're going to implement it. And I find that to be a huge justice issue. Um, in one of the panels I was in, the folks from Mississippi. They have $300,000 worth of funding, and I, I, they're up here in the front. I really recommend you speak to them, and the amount of work that they accomplish with $300,000 is amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, and then yet we have this research that might sit on a shelf or might not ever be communicated to the public or we might not know exactly why we're doing it that gets millions of dollars for one you know set of studies um and so i think that's a huge justice issue um and i'm sorry to be maybe it's uncomfortable for all of us but it's been uncomfortable for me the past few days 
Um, <laughs> so, you know, like justice really is, is about shifting power. And I know the word power is also uncomfortable and has negative connotations. And um, that's because power has been abused. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm. <laughs> but um, uh, what does it mean to have, you know, a person of color sit in your seat or, you know, present that side of the story, especially from the municipal uh, perspective, or what does it mean to to share your research dollars, or to to you know give some of that up, <laughs> and, and to spread the wealth? Um, because you know, for me, I work at an anti poverty organization, not necessarily an environmental organization, and so I, I watch my colleagues do different work. And and the thing that's most frustrating to me about my work is that it's it's now, but it's also ten years ten years off. I'm really looking at. 10 to 20 years off for the, the most dramatic impacts. Um, but people are suffering now, and I work with a lot of those people. And so I, I think every day, how can I use what I'm doing um, and planning and working for 10 to 20 years to help people like immediately? And I think I would challenge all of us to think about that in all of our work. How are we helping people now? Like We know that there's an issue, and so we're there. But... Um, um, it's a little bit tricky as sustainability professionals, so we need to we need to find a way. Mm. Mm. Oh. Um, I I'm like, what is there to say next? <laughs> <laughs> I think um, to you know bring in. The, the aspect around gender um, and, you know, thinking about the difference between equity and justice and, and justice is, uh, you know, about redistribution. It's about reparations. Um, it's about, you know, being in right relationship with Mother Earth and each other and the other beings and elements and things that we are all connected with and dependent on. And... Um, also, uh, Mustafa, you had said earlier about like, the double whammy, mm-hmm. right? Of like already experiencing these injustices, these inequities. And then also here comes climate change. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and I would say it's, it's a multiplier, right. right? It's right. exponential uh, in ways that we can't even fully comprehend, right? As the things go forward. Um, and so then if you take that and you think about the communities on the front lines, often we talk about low-income communities and communities of color, but then you disaggregate that and you break that down. Well, if you think about it, women, especially women of color, are particularly impacted by poverty, right? So one in seven women in the U.S. And I'm quoting amazing work that Jackie Patterson and the NAAC, NAACP <laughs> did. Um, so you should check out that tool. Um, but yeah, one in seven women are um, living in poverty in the U.S. And then if you think about uh, black women, uh, you know, 25% of us are living at the poverty line or below. Mm. And so as things happen, like, uh, you know, uh, disasters, extreme heat, extreme weather, um, displacement as we are greening our buildings, which is important, but how do, can we think about a way to do that that keeps people in place, right? Um, that's going to exacerbate the experiences of, of women and women of color and LGBTQI, right? We, we need to acknowledge there's a lot there to unpack. Um, and speaking from my experience um, or from just my sort of perspective and the way I identify, um, also I think about as a woman, as a black woman, I think about how we extract from our mother earth. A lot of cultures think about earth as mother earth, right? We extract from women, especially black women, do a lot of work, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And too much. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Mm. And um, yes, I'm so grateful for my elders and my aunties and um, Mm -hmm. in the work that they did to support our family. And so if we want to think about shifting from extraction from Mother Earth, how do we think about shifting from extraction from women and women of color? Uh, The doing labor that's unpaid, raising society, that's not paid. When they are doing paid labor, not getting paid the same, right? So just acknowledging that relationship, I think, is really important Mm -hmm. um, and can shift our orientation of, you know, you're talking about young people. Young people, like, and I am, you know, I'm a young person, but like even younger, younger, like... (laughs) Mm-hmm. It's like they still have that magic, right? And the creativity and the storytelling and like thinking about superheroes and, you know, like Endgame coming out, right? So actually thinking about the magic of what it means to think about Mother Nature and how we are heroes in shifting that. Different types of heroes, right? Heroes of, around creators, around stewardship and how that also shifts our relationship with women. And then lastly, I just want to acknowledge too that as extreme heat or um, emergencies happen, things around like sexual assault, sexual gender-based violence also is a higher risk. So just acknowledging that those experiences for women, they're not just experiencing the typical things that are horrific around, you know, clean water, safe shelter, but things like that, that often people who are male identified do not experience sometimes, but not often. That was some real talk. And, and I also want to tell you both how much, well, all of you on the stage, how much you all inspire me. And this is kind of the final question for this round. Do y'all enjoy that? As one of the things I just want to say as I look on the stage and I keep hearing it and you may hear it too is how hard black folks brown folks got to prove themselves just to get themselves at the point where you will listen mm-hmm. and that's hard that's painful. That's traumatic. I mean, we're doing extra degrees. We're doing extra jobs. We're looking at op- extra opportunities. And we also are connected to our community, so we know that they may not have it. So there's a, even a connection where we are being that bridge. And it's a painful situation. So sometimes when we're having these conversations, it's hard because folks don't understand where we are meeting each other in the conversation. And so there's a need to inspire one another. And so I want to let you both know so much that you have inspired me. Um, just because it just, it may, it's like you're just proud. You know, you just sit back and you just be like, man, you know, that's just what I'm talking about. <laughs> but more importantly, this issue for many communities of color is so compounding and there's so much there's situations where we're seeing everything from five years ago, Eric Garner dying and being choked out, to his daughter, Erica Garner, dying because of asthma because Staten Island still has an F for air quality and we live close to coal fire power plants, to Nipsey Hussles, mm-hmm. we may or may not know, and that's traumatic. And then we're looking at how we're treated in the workplace and how we're treated from the LGBTQIA community and how we're treated as immigrants in this, in this country. My parents are both who know Miami area because my parents are both, I'm from Louisiana, my parents are all from Trinidad. So all how you're treated and how that dynamic and racial and, and colorism, dark skin, mm-hmm. light skin, all those different things are put. And then we have this issue of survival and climate change. And so this show was created 
to inspire, to kind of take away sometimes, even though something you got to put forth. So you, would, you won't think that, because believe it or not, with Mustafa, you, Antonique, and everyone on the stage, you hear the expertise. Sometimes we got to peel that back so our folks can be inspired. So please, when you leave today, understand that a lot of times we are doing things because we have to, and have to, because the Almighty wants us to humble ourselves so that others can be inspired to keep fighting on a little while longer. Understand that dynamic. And so really my last question to you, based upon the history of our people on these shores, all they've been through, what do you, what, what can you do to let folks know who are listening, particularly those who are listening, young women, young women of color, from all walks of life, young men, everyone who's listening right now, what can you tell them that will inspire them to keep on keeping on? Victoria, start with you. <laughs> it's because I made eye contact with them first. <sighs> um... I think, you know, that is a really hard question because there is so, what you just laid out, so much trauma. Um, and at the same time, like that, that almost makes the moments of beauty and joy that much richer. And I think it's holding on, you know, for me, to my black joy, holding on to your joy, however you identify mm -hmm. in these moments are really essential. I really like that. I think <laughs> I do too. I think I'm I'm mischievous because <laughs> the way I really think, you know, you find some of the best opportunities to make change amidst the most chaos. Mm. And we're about to enter into a lot of chaos and a lot of upheaval because, you know, a lot of companies are struggling to figure out how do they make money when, when fossil fuels run out. You know, our, our, um, our electric utility is doing that right now in Florida. They monopolize the state and they're trying to figure out how can they make money and continue to monopolize the state if people had solar on their roofs and were able um, to have their hands on that power. Um, and so I guess uh, what we often say, I didn't come up with this term, but that you know, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so um, let's get to work. Um, let's take advantage of, uh, of the chaos and of the opportunity that comes in all of these challenges. Um, and I think together we'll figure it out. <laughs> and also, I know we are all inspired. We have an exciting announcement. Let's welcome Dr. Lara Hansen, co-founder, executive director, and chief scientist of EcoAdapt. Dr. Lara, come on up there. Yay! So we've heard a lot today mm -hmm. about how dire everything is for climate change, and we all recognize that because if you're in this room, you're already doing something about it. Um, but that message of game over that we keep hearing whenever an, a report comes out telling us about the situation isn't helping the matter. It often results in people feeling 
disempowered to take action, and we want to empower people to take action. So right. Because of that, well, I'm happy to be here to announce that a bunch of people have come up with a wild-eyed idea that April is not yeah, only trouble. Earth Month, but it is now also Global Adaptation Month. <laughs> Woo! And the goal of this is that we want people to make commitments. We want you to say what it is you're going to do each year to move us forward. So there's something you will achieve by next April, and then you'll have another one the next April, and we'll check in on you in April 2020 to see how you're doing on it. Because the goal is we want action, and we want change, and we want to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it is not game over for climate change adaptation. Rather, we are calling it game on. Yes. Game on. So... In the spirit of gaming on, Come on, we have been asking people to make commitments, to be early adopters, to be the game on vanguard, as it were. Um, I have two that are written. For the two written ones, do one of you want to read it? Is Dr. Hollis. Hollis in the house? Who's well, actually like a kind of, like a, a kind of quasi-co-host for Think More. Give it, Dr. Hollis, come on up. Read one of these. <laughs> Give it for Dr. Hollis, y'all. Right on. Plant and maintain. 50,000 trees by 2020 with a focus on our most vulnerable neighborhoods. That's from the city of Cleveland. And (laughs) Dr. Adrian Hollis. Right on. Implement the rapid vulnerability assessment tool to develop adaptive measures. This is from the National Commission of Natural Protected Areas, Mexico. Wow. Moving toward global with having Mexico involved. Okay, we have three live commitments to be made here. Okay. Over here. All right. So I've got two because I was really, really moved by our speakers. So number one, uh, we commit to integrating climate change and equity into every capital and land use decision that we make. And we're going to create a process by next year to do that. And uh, number two, I commit personally to shaking up our HR department to make sure there are no more impediments to people of color being hired in our city by removing barriers such as educational requirements that are sometimes arbitrary. Come on now. Right on. Okay, so we heard, we've already met the folks from Mississippi. They also have a commitment or two. Oh, yes. All right, now. How y'all doing? Hey. My name is Lazarus, and I just wanted to say that I vow to spread awareness about this on um, month, and I vow to make my community a better place. All right. Come on. My name is Mercy Watkins. I'm a Creek Ranger of Duck Hill, Mississippi, and I vow to plant more trees in Duck Hill and create a greener place. Mike Durglow, are you back there? Level up, Pesia. My name is Mike Derglow. I'm from the Confederate Salish and Kootenai tribes in um, northwest Montana. And uh, in 2012, I think we were one of the first tribes in the United States to develop a climate change strategic plan. This year, we got funding to re, basically rewrite that plan uh, based on new information. Uh, we all know how um, the models are so accelerated since uh, the, the models that we were looking at in 2012. Everything is happening way sooner and way harder 
and, and it's way harder for us to, to adapt or mitigate for those damages. So in that plan, I had a, a call uh, just about an hour ago with my steering committee. We are going to make sure that we include at the back of that plan and in the appendix um, a, a guide so that every one of you can use, can look at that plan and use it as a guide in the future for re rewriting your plans because we're going to all have to do it. Thank you. Mm. So I want to remind everyone that we'll be checking in with Montana, Mississippi, and Michigan. I did not plan on having all M's uh, next year. Uh, but if you want to sign up with your own commitment, uh, please do. There's the information for how to do it. For those who are listening, uh, the uh, social media hashtag is Game On for Climate, and it is look up um, National Adaptation or Global, sorry, Global Adaptation Month, um, and uh, you'll find it. And you can make your commitments, and they'll be live for everyone to see. Thank you so much. Each of our guests brought so much for us to think about, and my big takeaway is that powerful women have the vision. For this movement. And this is the time now. We have got to adapt to climate impacts and do what we can to protect the planet for future generations and generations to come. And we need to make sure our work is aligned with those on the front lines or we won't be successful on climate change. It's true. And the good news is, as we heard tonight, we are moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. But we are up against the clock, y'all. So we need to step it up. Step it up. We all have to accelerate our work and our commitment to all communities and listen. And I do mean listen to young people, listen to women, and listen to people of color who share the vision. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit think100.info to learn more about the issues and donate to this project. Also, be sure to follow us at Think100Show and at Hip Hop Caucus on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Use hashtag Think100. Thanks again and all.